What is philanthropy? Donations to good causes. The love of mankind. Preventing and solving social problems. Six-figure gifts. Giving of your time, talent, and treasure. If you ask a million people, you will get a million answers. And that is the root of many of the problems inherent in the philanthropic sector. If we are not on the same page about what it is, how can we expect to move forward towards a common goal? Hi, my name is Monique and I am a BIPOC fundraiser with over 15 years of experience. I am Valerie and I'm a white fundraiser with 10 years of experience. Each month, our goal is to dive into different aspects of the philanthropic sector from our varying perspectives to discuss how the sector can move forward beyond our current state to get on the same page and truly make a difference in our organizations and communities. Whether you're a nonprofit leader, a foundation manager, or a donor looking to evolve your practice, we're here to offer insights and actionable advice to help you move beyond philanthropy. To kick us off, we just wanted to share a little bit about how we got into philanthropy. So I am going to toss it over to my co-host, Monique, to kick us off. Why, thank you, Valerie, and welcome, welcome everyone to the first official episode of Beyond Philanthropy. So how did I get into philanthropy? I feel like this actually has been something that I've always done, and I say that in a sense of when I was younger, I was a Girl Scout. Um, so I was always volunteering uh, at high school. I uh, volunteered to tutor students and participate in a lot of activities that were uh, outreach. So as I got into my adult world, which is so funny because I went to school for architecture and design. My first job uh, was in my first like real nine to five job was in an architecture firm, but I just didn't feel satisfied. And prior to that, I had this summer job uh, here working at the Please Touch Museum. They have this program called the ACES program, or I'm not sure they still have it, but it was they were still downtown on 20th, 20th Street, I think. And they were fundraising for Memorial Hall. So woof, throwing, throwing it back. <laughs> and I had the ability to work with some really great students. And part of the program was that half the week they were with myself and the director and the other half of the week they were working in the museum. And the days that they weren't working with us, I was helping the marketing department or the fundraising department fundraise for Memorial Hall. So helping them create presentations for donors. And that was something that I never really thought of, never really knew about. But, you know, I enjoyed that. And the kids actually enjoyed watching me make these presentations. I can't remember his name, but they're used the older mascot, but before the kind of one they have now, we, I used to make him like do cartwheels across the screen in between. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. How did you do that? So on their lunch breaks, I would teach them uh, graphic design layout skills. And it was amazing because these kids, you know, they didn't like math. Like what kid likes math? You know, I didn't like math. I didn't understand math, but they were getting it. It was proportions, it was ratios, percentages, and they understood it because it was in a context which they enjoyed. So that kind of made me think about arts education. So when I was feeling unfulfilled in my job, and my job was great, you know, had you know great benefits, probably the best benefits I've ever had at any company. Um, the work hours were crazy because I was writing proposals and things like that, but 
I just, in myself, just didn't feel uh, fulfilled. So I started a nonprofit that did arts education and I ran that for 10 years and really enjoyed just working with kids and, and being able to sit down. I, I remember my very first donor meeting was at Park. Uh, it was uh, one of my board members introduced me to someone and I basically sat there and, and sold them on what I was doing. And they were like, great, we've got 20,000 for you. I was like, what? And after that, I was just off and running. And it, and it was and it was easy to a point because what I ended up doing in the design field and in the architecture field was business development. So I was always doing outreach to different construction teams and the heads of design at Hilton. I worked for a hospitality design company. So we did a lot of, we worked for, we, we built the Comcast Tower in Philadelphia. So I worked with the Roberts. So things like that I was always just always out there already. So it made it easy for me to kind of sit down and have that conversation with that donor. And, you know, when I decided to go full time into this world, actually, I decided to be a stay at home mom at one point, And I realized I wasn't built to be a stay at home mom. Uh, but when I decided to go back into work full time, I'm like, I just want to I just want to be in fundraising and philanthropy full time. Like that's that's just what I want to do. So that's my long story long <laughs> of how I got into this field. <laughs> Not a long story at all. And I really I love that you started with architecture. I think I hear a lot with fundraisers that we fell into fundraising from mm -hmm. somewhere else, but I've never heard architecture. So that's a new one. Yeah, I mean, so it was so I went to school for architecture and then my I guess it's the end of my sophomore year, I switched to digital design with a focus on architectural visualization. So it's doing walkthrough renderings and marketing materials and things like that, like 3D stuff. So, but I ended up doing marketing and business development in design companies and architecture firms. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy story. I feel like just to make that jump, but I, I just fell into it. And it was natural because I had this passion to give back just from my volunteering and wanting to make an impact, but then also the ability to lead business development activities. And that just transitioned very, it was kind of weird at first because with business development, it's almost a reciprocal relationship, right? So I sell you on my services, you get an awesome hotel or building or whatever, we get money. And making that transition to, well, you feel good. Uh, you get a, you get a receipt, you get a tax write-off just to, and it was, a, that was a little odd at first, but being able to just sell my passion to someone about what I was doing, that, that just came natural. Yeah. And it's not like a lot of the skills are applicable, right? Like even yeah. some of the marketing and the graphics and, and the mm -hmm. design things that you were doing, mm -hmm. we as fundraisers often end up also doing marketing stuff and yeah. creating websites and creating logos and yeah. Yeah. So it all kind of plays right into it. How about um, you? How about you? So I wanted to be an event planner. You've heard this story okay. before. I wanted to be Lorelai Gilmore and I wanted to have <laughs> a cute little inn and, you know, organize these cute little events, like a fashion show where my mom and I would have to wear matching things and walk down the runway that was crooked that Luke had to fix for us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I knew that I didn't want to work for a tiny little inn because I also wanted to live in the city. I grew up in the suburbs and I did not like it out there. I definitely love living in Philadelphia where I do now. And I was thinking like hotels or maybe a restaurant or, you know, like some of the bigger places. So I come to Drexel and I'm a marketing major because my mom insists that I have a major that is usable if I don't get into event planning <laughs> because mothers. Um, she was right, by the way, it is good to have a degree. 
But are you going to say that on, <laughs> on, on, on the record? On the record, <laughs> she was recorded. correct. She's going to listen to this. So yes, she was correct. Um, but I, I ended up getting an internship at an event planning organization and it was like special events, PR, um, very glitzy, you know, they had a lot of large clients, including park at one point. Um, so I, I thought I was going to love it. I thought it was exactly what I wanted. And I was there for maybe a week before I quickly realized that the glitz and the glam and the image was all they cared, not all they cared about, but like very, very, very important to everyone that worked there in a way that like, I could care less what my hair looks like today. I'm not a makeup wearer. Um, you all can't see us right now, but like, I'm just very plain Jane. My style is comfortable. <laughs> that's, that's my yeah. personal style comfort. So I remember one day, um, they said last minute, like we need somebody to work registration at this event tonight. Um, Val, are you available? And I was like, yeah, I can do it. And they were like, great. So where are your shoes? And I was like, the ones on my feet. They were like, no, like the shoes that you're going to wear to the event. And I was like, mm, I don't. So my boss at the time who I am still friends with because she is a nice human, um, gave me her shoes off her feet and her makeup bag and her emergency hair care products and sent me to the bathroom and got me ready. Um, quote unquote, to actually work that event that night. And I was like, what? I'm just going to sit behind a table and check people's names off a list. Like what, why do I need to look? I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So after that, I was like, I gotta, we gotta change this. <laughs> this is not what I was looking for. This is not what I want. So I ended up interning with city of hope. So shout out to Michelle and Harry, who are two of my absolute favorite people to work for. Harry was always jamming out in his office to Michael Jackson and Michelle always took the time to sit and explain to me why we were doing things the way we were doing. And they organized, um, really cool nonprofit events. So let them eat cake and five K's and walks and stuff like that. And I realized that I could do event planning and could dive into the logistic stuff that I love but also not have to look a certain way and get to raise money for a good cause at the end of the day. So I went from there to my first real-time job, which was meeting planning, which is boring in case anyone has never done that before. Cause it's the same. It's basically like a checklist, like, okay, call the AV company, tell them the date, check, call the catering company and tell them the date, check. And you just kind of run down your list. And sometimes you get to do really cool things, but at the place I was working at, it, it was, it was not cool. It was checklist. So I started volunteering for a nonprofit that was having its very first special event fundraiser and eventually got hired by them and got completely sucked into the world of fundraising and then realized that special events are not at all the best way to raise money. So the way I fell into fundraising is now one of my least favorite things to do <laughs> as a fundraiser. So I've really come full circle here, I think. Yeah, between that and the park meeting, I mean, I think we're we're full circle on this whole entire show right here. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. So you fell into it, and with the least thing that you like to do, I mean, what is the what is the best thing you like to do? I like to talk to people, um, yeah. which is not surprising at all because we are here on a podcast talking to people. That's what we're here for. Because um, we were talking all the time. <laughs> But I, I love talking to people. I love building relationships with people. And I also love seeing how people react when they realize the impact of what they're doing. Um, right. So I, 
I really love a donor who can like come in and see a program in action and think like I had something to do with this. Like mm-hmm. I was able to help in some way. I was able to give back in some way. Like I am making a difference and all I'm doing is throwing some money at it and letting mm-hmm. people do what they know how to do best. Um, so I think that's my, my favorite part is kind of building that relationship and then watching people get the you know, benefits that come along with knowing that they've done a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's what it should be about, right? It's that, that's that love, right? Mm-hmm. They they did something that they loved and it came out. It is the same thing for me. I mean, when, I mean, I'm good at grant writing though. It's like the bane of my existence because it's just after I finish grant writing, like my brain, I have to take a break. Like my same. brain is like completely done. Um, but you know, it's something that I'm good at, you know, I've been successful at it, but I think that the thing that I like the most, and even event planning, I'm, when I, you know, I worked at Stepping Stone Scholars as their director of development for about four years. And, you know, I put on, you know, most fun events that I'd ever put on and I raised like the most money, the organization, organization I've ever seen, um, for their fundraisers. So they're fun to do, even though like my husband, hated me every September because he just knew, cause we, ha- we held our events every September and my anxiety and my stress level and my lack of patience mm-hmm. <laughs> was through the roof. Uh, so, so yeah, so September is even in my birthdays in September, it was always my birthday weekend. It always <laughs> fell my birthday weekend, which I was like, come on guys. But thing that I liked the most about it was just the people. I mean, even with the event planning, I mean, even with the fundraising, you know, getting people to really, you know, write those big sponsorship checks um, and understand that the that the dollars that they're putting out is not just to put on a nice party, um, but it's actually to go to a good cause or just being able to steward someone and have them finally say like, oh my gosh, like you're so, you're so passionate. I see your passion. And because of that, I want to write this check and make, and make this difference, right? I see the need. And it's about the need uh, and not just about, you know, who's being honored or, you know, who's doing what and who they are, but just really about the impact that really needs to be made. And I think that when we talk about moving beyond philanthropy and we talk about, you know, what love is and all those things like that, I think that's what it comes down to. It really just comes down to what is the impact that, that needs to be made and are they passionate about it? Like, are they really about the change that needs to happen? And I think that, you know, that's, you know, that's what I love about this field, you know, really being able to understand what someone's needs are and how it aligns with the needs of the community. I think we've both been really lucky in our careers that we have mostly been able to work with donors who get that, who understand that they are not the ones making the decisions per se, and they're not the ones deciding what is best for the people that they're hoping to help. Um, but I think we may be in a minority there. I think there are a lot of people. I mean, I've, I've, I've had some that were on the other <laughs> end of that as well. Like, don't get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that's something that I would love to see just talked about more. Like, I know the community-centric fundraising model mm-hmm. is becoming a thing and fundraisers are really getting on board with that and kind of talking about what it is and how to do it. But I um, part of, I think moving beyond philanthropy is really moving beyond the historical version of philanthropy and how everything is set up and who created the setup and why it is set up the way that it is set up and who it benefits and all of those fun things that um, I never thought about as an early fundraiser (laughs) started to kind of dive into and really you think about the systems and 
and the systemic racism that's built into it. And it has been enlightening and eye-opening over the last couple of years as I've like really taken a step back and thought about how all of this plays together and how I'm part of it. And I am kind of uncomfortable with my role here, but like kind of, (laughs) but it is my job and this is what I'm here to do. So like, it, I don't know, I have a lot of questions (laughs) and I have a (laughs) lot of thoughts, Um, but hopefully, hopefully what I'm doing is kind of tackling it from within, or at least that's what I'm hoping to be able to do through having these conversations here on the podcast and having conversations outside of the podcast is how can we move beyond this old model, old traditional model of fundraising and get to something that's a little bit more equitable. I think that's a good, that's a good question for us. Right. And I think that part of it is what, like, what does that look like that we can all get on the same page about, um, you know, what can we all agree on? And that's funders, fundraisers, um, EDs, you know, everyone, like what, what does that look like? So I think I'm going to ask you that, you know, (laughs) this is, you know, you got into this field and and we're both in a space where we're kind of like the traditional way is not the way we want to keep existing within it. So how would you want to exist in it? You know, what, if you were moving beyond the current state of philanthropy, what would that look like to you? I don't have a good answer to this question, but I'm going to do my best. I would really, I mean, I think we have to recognize that we as fundraisers are not in the position of power. So when we're talking about changing the way our field runs, we probably have the least power in this dynamic. Um, You know, donors have power, funders have power, executive directors have power, and also there's power in numbers. So if all of the executive directors banded together and said, we're not taking money from funders who prescribe to us. Like we are only taking money from funders who will, you know, let us be the experts and let us do what we know how to do. Then maybe we could get somewhere, but also there's always going to be that one organization. (laughs) There's always going to be that one person who's like, (laughs) yeah, I'll take the money anyway. It's cool. You can tell me how to do my job. I just want the money. So I, it's going to be really hard. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, But in an ideal world, I would love to see more of those people in positions of power listening to fundraisers as opposed to not listening to us and just letting us keep doing things the way they're doing. And and there are a lot of funders who are doing it. I know the trust-based philanthropy model is starting to catch some Mm -hmm. wins too. And, you know, I've had some really, really, really positive interactions with local funders who have really embraced that model and they trust us. They know that we know what we're doing. They, you know, do multi-year grants, they do general operating funds. They like really have gone above and beyond and done things that we as fundraisers advocate for. Mm -hmm. And it's really worked out. So I would love to see more people doing that. (laughs) And, you know, as fundraisers, it's our job to build relationships and build trust. So I'm hoping to continue to use that relationship that I'm building with our funders to start to make that change. Um, but that's that's a very low level of change, right? So like systemically, it's not going to do anything for the whole entire system. But for the funders and the donors that I work directly with, mm. I'm starting to see some change. So it's not really a good answer to the question because there is no easy way to, to make change, but I'm trying to do what I can to kind of push folks forward. And I'm hoping that we can find ways to band together. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I mean, I think that's a good 
perspective because i mean it is it's it's a it's a slow incremental thing like you can have those conversations with those they're almost like one offs at this point um but when does it actually kind of snowball so when i think about donors i always think about the i'll say click mentality right like oh you know, so-and-so gave, so I'm going to give to, or so-and-so did this. So I want to do something bigger, better, like, you know, personal competition. So I wonder if there's a space or a time when there starts becoming this group of people who are kind of in this trust-based philanthropy space, and they're kind of leading their peers, right? Because you're right. Like we, we don't, we don't have the power. I mean, I would love, <laughs> I think, I think in my moving beyond philanthropy, the nonprofits and the fundraisers would have all the power. Um, and I don't mean like all the power, but really understanding, really being able to say, this is what is needed. This is why it's needed, where it's needed. May we have your support for this. And this is what it is with no, with no stipulations, with no um, extra requirements or anything like that. And, and, that's, and that's moving along that trust-based community-centric model. Uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, in my, in my world, you know, that's where it, it would be where everyone is just kind of just trusting of the dollars needed to be spent. And it just, in my head, I keep thinking about this conversation that I recently sat in on. Um, it was the Center for Responsive Philanthropy and um, APFI and they had some speakers and one of the speakers was saying that, you know, this, this, the cycle that we're already in and that we're trying to get out of, uh, you know, we've given money to this, you know, as, as funders, you know, we can't keep giving money to this. You guys got to figure out how to make this sustainable. You guys have to figure this out. And, you know, he was saying that that has been from basically the beginning of traditional philanthropy, right? Like that's even how they got started in, you know, funding Thurgood Marshall because people were like, we're no longer giving money to the South. We're no longer giving money here. And it's just kind of like, yeah, but we have to understand the systemic issues that cause this. Like, it's not like we can be sustainable if the laws don't change. It's not that we can be sustainable if the same impoverished cities and communities still exist. So it's, it's hard to, to operate in a bubble when there's so many things that are impacting it. And the quicker that we can all come to an understanding of what those issues are and what the needs really are. And even if that's, you know, talking about advocacy, which is like the dirty word, because, you know, you're only allowed to do so much. And it's like, you don't want to go over because you don't want to get in trouble. And then we don't want to get into that space. But it's kind of like you're doing a disservice if you're not, you know, the laws impact the work you do for good or for bad. Yeah. You know, whether yeah. And also the fact that we're not allowed to advocate as nonprofits that you can up to like something, still, something really low and so, it's hard. It's hard to do that. You don't even have money as it is to run your programming. So it's like right. 10, 10 or whatever person. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's and then thing. there's the fear that you're going to get shut down if you yep. do it wrong. So you just don't do it. But also who made that law in the first place? Like who decided that nonprofits shouldn't be advocating because that isn't that literally what we're created to do is to help <laughs> communities who can't help themselves and but you know the, the the other companies can lobby and pay for laws that are in their favor and that's I digress I'm not going to go down that path <laughs> but you know <laughs> yeah no I it's real though like it is I mean when we're talking about operating in a bubble like I work for a housing organization 
we're never going to be self-sufficient. There is no way to make money off of what we do. Like we can only operate if we receive funding from somewhere and the problem's not going to go away until we live in a country where there are not people in poverty. There are not people who are unemployed. There are not people who have severe health issues that there are so many factors that lead Mm -hmm. to somebody experiencing homelessness that happen at the policy level, they happen Mm -hmm. at the legal level, they happen at the structure of our country level. And we're just here like plugging the holes. And then the funder says, we got to figure out how to make this program sustainable. I'm like, let's figure out how to make our country sustainable. (laughs) Like, let's figure out how to make there not be homelessness period in the United States. Like, One of our board members says all the time, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world and we have more people experiencing homelessness than Mm -hmm. all of the other like major countries combined almost. So why can't we figure out a solution to this problem? I think we know the solution to the problem. We just, nobody is doing it. (laughs) No one is. No one. It's, it's, it's so weird. And I think that, you know, that's, that's my, that's the change. Like I want people to really like honestly understand that and take accountability for it and and fund and move in a way that that supports it past filling those holes and putting a band-aid on it. You know, I was looking at so like two recent things just came out that blew my mind. So one was, you know, I try not to get into politics, especially like on social media. And I did it. I started to like, I wrote a whole thing and then I deleted it. You know how that goes, right? <laughs> All the time. But, uh, but uh, you know, in PA, the governor is wanting to increase taxes to pay for schools. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, are you kidding me? All the businesses that can be taxed that aren't because of whatever loopholes, because of whatever tax abatements, where you can be getting the money to cover that. So instead of getting rid of those things, your idea is to tax the people that are already suffering, especially after the year that we just had. Like you're really talking about increase, like people are still losing their jobs, but you want to increase taxes. So, you know, that was one. And then in that same vein, I saw that they were, the federal government is talking about this, I guess it's called the ultra wealthy tax or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And they said, Jeff Bezos would owe like $5 billion or something crazy like that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you know how many people we can uplift out of poverty with that tax haven that he has? And it's just not, you know, it's just kind of like, so when, so when he gives dollars for, um, you know, philanthropy and quotations, I'm really like, yeah, but that's like, a drop in the bucket compared to like what we could, what he and what this country could really be doing. So it's just the policies all the way around uh, just need, just need to change. Capitalism has a kink in it somewhere. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a kink in it. I, I think about the billionaires who have all signed on to this pledge to give away their wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. And it does feel like a drop in the bucket. And it also, I don't know. Like, it feels a little selfish. Like I'm gonna give away my wealth, but not until I'm done with it. Like not until I have done every single possible thing I can do in my life that I want, that I have the privilege to do, then you can have my money. In the meantime, everyone who's suffering is going to continue to suffer. Like they say Bezos could like solve climate change if he wanted to with the amount of money that he has that he could give and still live a comfortable life after he gives enough to solve climate change he could probably also solve homelessness too so like 
why not just do it? Like why sign on to this pledge to give it away? Like by the time you pass away, like, I know you need to take care of yourself and your family, but do you need six jets and everything else you've got? <laughs> like, I think the, the false generosity that is kind of portrayed as like such an amazing thing, because when they announce that and more people sign on to it, they get such kudos for that. Like, yeah, yes, look at you. You signed on to the challenge. You're going to pledge. That's amazing. You're amazing. We love you. And in the meantime, there's tons of people suffering that they could help right now, like right now, right now. like they right now. Turn around because by just... the time they die, mm -hmm. the, the, the generational poverty will be increased tenfold. Yeah, so whatever, exactly. what they, where they could have stopped it in its yeah. tracks. You could stop it in its tracks, far. or you could continue to benefit from your privilege. You could continue to benefit from your wealth and ignore everyone who's suffering, but then look good when you pass away and look good for the rest of your life until you pass away by saying like, someday I'm going to give my money back someday, someday. But in the meantime, chilling on my yacht gonna enjoy my life. I don't know. I made that part up, but, <laughs> but it kind of feels that way. And it like, it's so infuriating to me that like, we're sitting here talking about how we as fundraisers can make change, right? Like right. they can make change. There's like 10 people in the world who could solve every single thing our nonprofit does if they all just banded together and gave some money and also didn't attach ties to said money, like just legit gave the money and said, you are the community. You understand what you need. Do right. it. Yeah. Infuriating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just goes back to, you know, like I said, you know, my, one of my two changes is the fundraisers and the, non, the actual organizations and its staff, including the fundraisers, you know, having the power. <clears throat> and then two, everyone just being on the same page with understanding what the issues, what they are, where they're stemming from, and like what, what needs to change. Because as long as everyone has their own ideals of like what someone else is going through, mm -hmm. uh, we're never really going to get to really understanding what what that changes like oh you know they're they're living they're uneducated you know let's let's give them free college okay but that single mom does does, does she now have childcare so she can go to school how about her job to pay the bills that she has to pay like there's other things that holistically surround that person in terms of services and needs and you know so i remember one conversation with a donor and we were talking about something like that. And we weren't, and our organization wasn't doing it. We had brought in partners to mm -hmm. do the things that just, you know, we're, we're not mission drifting, but we're bringing in partners to make sure that we're providing holistic services. And we were accused of mission drifting. Like you're an education organization. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. I said, well, we're not, we're offering it because we know that we have a rigorous program mm -hmm. in addition to the school day. So in order to get kids to participate, we need them to want to be here. We need to offer them things. Not only that, but like, hey, one kid, he's he has to watch his sister after school and his sister's age group is not in our age group. So we had to bring someone else in to provide some kind of after school program for that for that age group. Like there has to, you have to understand what people are actually facing mm -hmm. to really help them. And if you're only gonna focus on one aspect of it, then we're all just doing a disservice. Yeah. And I think that's where it's not just the donors that get caught up in that, but a lot of times it's the nonprofit leaders themselves who are not yeah. of the community that they're serving. 
doesn't happen all the time, but there are definitely times where, I mean, I can't, I'm in a group on Facebook of nonprofit folks and there's mm -hmm. like 45,000 and like without fail, at least once a week, somebody will like drop a the brand new member will be like, I have this great idea for a nonprofit. I'm going to start a nonprofit. What advice do you have for me? And so many people in the group will like jump in and be like, who else is doing this in your community? Right. How do you know this is a community need? How did you decide to start this nonprofit? What kinds of things are you looking to offer? Like, yeah. who have you talked to? Who are your stakeholders? Who's on your board? And they get so overwhelmed and they also get really defensive. Like it's a really lot. defensive. I was going to say that they really? get really defensive. I've had those conversations. Like, yeah. so why, why are you doing this? Oh, I want to start a, I had someone come to me like, oh, I want to start a diabetes um, organization. And I was like, okay. So I sent them a questionnaire, like, you know, why, you know, like, oh, well, you know, my mom died and, you know, I just want to help and I want to get back and prevent. Okay, great. How, mm -hmm. what are you offering to do that? Well, you know, I don't really know. Okay. So what organizations that are out there that are already doing something like me, like, have you looked into what's already happening in this area? Well, no, you know, I just want to, and it's just like, that's so I, I ran a nonprofit for 10 years and I had a, I was sitting in on a conference and, you know, this is when I really started like the year that was like my eye opening year to like the sector. And, you know, the conversation was about duplicity, especially here, because as a fundraiser, you already know, like we're already vying for the same dollars, like mm -hmm. the, like the pot of money here is not that big. So, you know, we're all fighting for the same dollars. So you have, small nonprofits that are getting small bites because people, organizations are either, you know, I'm going to give out, you know, $22,000 grants instead of giving out like maybe like two really big grants because they're trying to help as many people. And as they say, like, you know, spread their impact, but what is $2,000 really doing? Nothing. Like, like, what, like, what is that really doing? <laughs> Especially when it's restricted. I mean, that's right. not only is it $2,000, but it's $2,000 that can't be used on salary. It only can right. be used on program materials. How many books can you buy? Like you get so many $2,000 grants before you're like, I can't buy books anymore, but I do have to pay my staff. So no. So you know what I use when people, when I have donors that talk about restrictive funding, I say, so that's telling me that I can buy 200 packs of crayons and all I'm doing is just putting them in a room. Mm -hmm. If I don't have someone who's providing the structure, that's hiring the staff, that's creating the curriculum, that's actually creating a meaningful activity with the crayons, all I have are kids in a room with some crayons. What are they doing with the crayons? And they're like, oh, I guess just, you know, and then, you know, then people say, well, you know, it's the way you do your budget. Like, you know, those staff members are program staff members. Sure. But that's not all their time. Yeah. And then there's other things that, you know, managers and operations people, the people even have to order the crayons. Like there's other things that go that are involved with those crayons yeah. <laughs> that we have to really think about. <laughs> yeah. And we as nonprofits think about them, but the donors don't, because at the end of the day, the donors are like, I just want to support education. I just want to see kids with crayons in their hands. And that's all I want. It's like, well, that's, there's so much more that goes. So that goes right. back to just who's, who's creating the nonprofits? Right. <laughs> Do they need to be created? Um, and also I think the privilege really comes into play there too, because the people who create the large and successful nonprofits that are really well-known and well-connected tend to be wealthier white folks. 
So Mm -hmm. the people who create the nonprofits that are on the ground doing the best, most beneficial work are the community, are the community. And the community is not worried about visibility. They're not worried about marketing. They're not even really worried about fundraising. They just want to get what their community needs to their community as quick as humanly possible. So they're out there struggling for those $2,000 grants. They're out there winging it, trying to figure it out, but they're also doing the best work. So I get super frustrated that there's these big monoliths that end up getting all of the attention and all of the dollars and all of the notoriety. Mm -hmm. And they might not even be doing the best services. Like they're doing okay services. I'm not saying they're doing bad services. I mean, sometimes they are, but for the most part, they're probably doing like, you know, pretty okay services, but the people who are doing the super impactful stuff, and this is all anecdotal, by the way, I have no research to support what I'm saying, but the people who are doing the real work are the ones who are getting no recognition and no money to actually do the real work. It's so, you know, you know what that is though, right? So, you know, I, I was having a conversation with a nonprofit and, you know, everything was anecdotal, but then it was also, you know, they were an organization that was working with kids to, I think that were almost like kids that were returning citizens, I'll say, they were coming out of, you know, juvenile homes and things like that. And, you know, they would tell a story about, you know, what they were doing with them to keep them off the streets. But then in that same breath would say how many of them went back in, which was like a good majority of them. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, something is wrong with your program. Like something Mm -hmm. is wrong with your implementation. But also, because they're struggling for these $2,000 programmatic grants, they don't have the dollars to fund the capacity to figure out what that is. Mm -hmm. They don't even know properly how to evaluate the program. Mm -hmm. So even in that, in that anecdote that he's telling me, like that actually comes off really bad, but you don't understand that because you don't have the capacity to dive into like, okay, what are we really doing? How is this working? What are the stats? And, and that's a problem because one, they're $2,000 and then they're restrictive (laughs) and it's like, oh, well, I can't even go take an evaluation class or bring in a third party or do any of those things that I probably should be doing. So I'm doing the best that I can. And then you're right that they're the ones that are on the ground making it happen. Uh, but because they lack those capacity building dollars and, and um, resources, they're not able to really stand up when it against those other organizations. Yeah. I'm, we're, I'm covering a wide range of topics today. I know. Yeah. I was just thinking that like, we're all over the place, but it all goes back to like, personally, what we feel, (laughs) what what needs to change and who we are is just to give you a little bit of insight of where this podcast is going. (laughs) Yeah. That was where I was going with that. So we are going to have to wrap up soon. Um, so we'll do some final thoughts, but this, this is a good taste of kind of where we're going. So we're looking to dive into some topics more specifically and not hip hop, sketch, scotch all over many topics, all connected, it's all connected. <laughs> interconnected topics, but still we covered a lot of ground today. Um, okay. do you have any final thoughts for our listeners for our very first episode? Yes. I mean, I think that one, you know, all fundraisers should be looking into trust-based philanthropy and understanding what that is. There's a whole project, there's a whole movement around it. And even the community centric fundraising, you know, I think that, you know, like you said earlier, it's power in numbers. And if we all come together on how we're really trying to impact the community, like we as fundraisers have to move beyond the dollars, the Mm -hmm. dollars are to impact the community. And once we're in a spot where we can successfully understand what they need, and we're able to tell that story, I think that, you know, the sector as a whole will really be for the better. 
my final thought is we need to be talking to each other about this more. Um, so you and I both write for Generosity, which is a local Philly publication. And every single time I write an article, I get at least one person who reaches out who I don't know and says, oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. I've always thought that, but I haven't been able to articulate it. Or mm. I've always, you know, like thought about this and like, I never knew anybody else thought about this too. So that's my parting thought is start having conversations with people, you know, in fundraising or in nonprofits or even on the foundation side and just feel them out and see where they're at. Because I think a lot more of us have these thoughts inside of us than we think. And we just need to start actually having the conversations. No, definitely. This has been fun. It's been very fun. I look forward to doing this again next month. Hopefully you Definitely. all will stick with us. See you next month, guys. Thanks for listening.